Today's reading comes from Matthew 4, 23 to 25, and 5, verse 1 to 2. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. You may be seated. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, as we enter into this new series on Jesus' most well-known sermon, we ask you that you would indeed open our eyes that we might behold your glory. We ask you, Lord, once again, that you would open our ears that we might hear the truth of your word. We ask you, God, that you would open our hearts that we might believe and trust you in all the promises you've made, that we might live our lives in such a way that the work of our hands glorifies you in everything we do. And we pray this all in Jesus' majestic name. Amen. Amen. Uh, what we are studying here over the next 32 weeks, which will take us into portions of the next 10 months, is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. It's what we call the Sermon on the Mount. We find it in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, 6, and 7. And all that I really aim to do today as we introduce this uh, new series and introduce this sermon all that I really aim to do is, is give you some background and some of the circumstances that have led to Jesus ascending up onto the mountain, sitting down, his disciples coming to him, the crowds coming around them, and then he begins to teach. I just want to bring you to a place where we actually maybe talk more about the preacher of the sermon than we do about the Sermon on the Mount itself. Uh, this is the sermon where we get famous sayings that are really, uh, I think, have proliferated our cultural understanding of just what it means to be a person. We talk about being salt of the earth. That comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is where we get a hold of the golden rule, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Judge not, lest ye be judged. If you've hung out with some of your friends who are maybe not quite as uh, religiously inclined as you are, and you say, well, here's how I think we should live, judge not lest you be judged. That's the one verse everyone knows, right? Everybody knows that that, they don't know it comes from the Sermon on the Mount. They just know that there's something in the Bible about not judging me, right? Um, I actually grew up around some guys who now have, have tattooed on their body, on one of my friends had it tattooed across his chest, only God can judge me, like that's good news. That's a terrifying thing to tattoo on your body. Okay. <laughs> the idea of turning the other cheek, that's here in Jesus' sermon. I think this, this sermon has had a, a really deep impact on our cultural thought, even on a popular level. And so we hear this talk about it. But it's also a sermon that delves into some difficult topics. And Jesus speaks difficult words on anger and lust and divorce and retaliation and hypocrisy. He speaks difficult words on loving your enemies. And giving to the poor, and on prayer, and fasting. Talks about the destruction that comes when you give yourself over to materialism. He's going to talk to us and encourage us about our anxieties in this life. But he's also going to talk about the phonies who sort of want the power of Jesus, but they do so apart from a relationship with Jesus. That's all in this. Um, here's my promise to you. If you listen to the whole sermon chapter 5, 6, and 7, 
you read the whole sermon, and instead of picking and choosing just the little verses of the passages you like, I promise you, if you don't do that, you are going to feel very uncomfortable. There's a guarantee for you that somewhere in this sermon, you are going to be challenged. It's uncomfortable at times to engage Jesus and what he paints as a picture of what it looks like for people to follow him and to live in his family. This sermon is quoted often by politicians, usually when they're trying to anchor their proposals or um, their policies in something transcendent. And I think there's also this thing where you're not supposed to disagree with the Sermon on the Mount, so they'll attach that authority to their policy. I think that happens. You got very nervous when I said the word politician. It's going to get worse. This sermon is quoted by celebrity activists of every stripe, and they're all co-opting the preacher of the sermon as a person who aligned with them. Usually it's in disalignment or in disagreement with their enemies. Uh, this sermon is often quoted by rebels, again, who tell you that, that they, you don't have the moral authority to judge them. It gets quoted in that way. Uh, the sermon's quoted by religious leaders all over the world, of all the major world religions, as a point of agreement. They would look at this sermon and say, yeah, we can agree with Jesus, even though they don't think the preacher of the sermon deserves any particular allegiance or any particular worship. They want to access his teaching. The Sermon on the Mount is the most often uh, cited destination for them to find agreement with Jesus. I think people might love the Jesus they see in the Sermon on the Mount at times, but I don't think most people will take seriously the things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, and I don't think they will engage that in light of the rest of his teaching. John Stott, wonderful scriptural commentator, exegete. He said, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly the least obeyed. It's the next 32 weeks. You're like, oh. Abhajit Naskar, one of the world's he's most popular neuroscientists, he's written a whole bunch of stuff, and he basically writes on neuroscience and, and neuroscience and religion. So religion in light of neuroscience talks about this all the time in all of his books, and he talks about how Jesus' philosophy of life was great, but then how Jesus' followers messed it all up when they wrote the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. But I think he's right when he says this. He says, the influence of the Sermon on the Mount is truly past reckoning. Any rational human being with a conscientious mind is bound to be influenced by its exuberant content regardless of religious background. And so maybe that's you. You are from a different religious background inquiring on the things of Jesus and you've gathered with us today to try and figure out why your friends are so adamant that Jesus is Lord, but you would have some familiarity around the Sermon on the Mount. I think he's right. Um, I think he's wrong when he goes on, though, and he says things like this. He says, if you're truly able to walk in the shoes of Christ, the very label of religion called Christianity would disappear from the face of the earth. He says, if you really followed Jesus, we wouldn't have any Christianity. Well, I don't think that's what Jesus was getting at. He says, anyone who utters salvation only through Christ inadvertently commits to the greatest blasphemy of all, which is differentiation. And this, in turn, diminishes the very essence of the title Christian. He's saying anytime you say there's something exclusive about Christianity, then you have blasphemously denied who Jesus really was. That's his argument. I think he's wrong. Uh, Jesus also said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. So I, I think 
Dr. Nasker needs to have a look. But this is the question that I want to embed in your minds this morning as we look at this introductory sermon to the Sermon on the Mount. The question is this. Can you adopt the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and reject its teacher? Can you adopt the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount while you reject its teacher? Because the Sermon on the Mount is so well known, a lot of very influential people, like I said, are going to come to the Sermon on the Mount, they're going to read their worldview and their beliefs onto it, and they're going to ensure that Jesus agrees with them. Let me give you some examples. Barack Obama wrote a book, and in that book, he cites the Sermon on the Mount as why he changed his stance on gay marriage from being one where civil union was fine to one where it needed to be marriage. He cites the Sermon on the Mount. He says something to the effect, we don't want to look at an obscure verse in Romans. We want to live our lives in light of the Sermon on the Mount, as those are two opposite things to be pitted together. That's not how we read the Bible. Justin Trudeau aligned, uh, alluded to the Sermon on the Mount in his speech to the UN a couple of years ago, and he, he talked about it in a way, of course, which made his point. Um, everybody south of the border seems to have Jesus as their token political leader. Now, I love you, American friends, and we're going to talk about Canada in a second, so Canadians, we're not off the hook here. We spent some time down in, in a, it was a very interesting state, that's all I'm going to say. We spent some time in the States, we went to a wedding, and when you listen to people talk about Jesus, it sounds like he's the patron saint of their particular party, but the fact is, both parties think that. That's weird, right? Isn't it interesting when we're citing the Sermon on the Mount for our own cause, how Jesus always comes out as being in agreement with us? Everybody seems comfortable quoting the Sermon on the Mount and quoting Jesus uh, when they're using it against their political enemies. Um, We're in the middle of a federal election right now. There's already been national news stories written about this in terms of the four leaders of the four major national parties and how they all have a different take on Jesus. And the really interesting thing is when you dig down a little bit deeper, they all seem to think Jesus agrees with their platform. Yet you see these leaders on stage arguing with each other. They won't even let each other finish their sentences because they disagree with each other so much. But Jesus somehow agrees with all of them if you ask the question. Uh, uh, communist revolutionary Cuban leader Fidel Castro. He said, I never saw a contradiction between the ideas that sustain me and the ideas of that symbol of that extraordinary figure, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Mikhail Gorbachev, former Soviet president. uh, If you watch Chernobyl this summer, guy with the birthmark, right? That's that's, That's who we're talking about. Jesus was the first socialist, he said the first to seek a better life for mankind. Isn't it interesting how everybody gets to claim Jesus as their guy? It's not limited to politics. Um, We're going to be looking at, over the next nine weeks, what we call the Beatitudes, kind of the first part of chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, There's a book written by the Dalai Lama called The Good Heart. It's called A Buddhist Perspective on the Teachings of Jesus. The Dalai Lama says when we look at the Beatitudes of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says that is essentially the same thing as karma. It's not, just to be clear. You were all waiting for, is Brett wrong? (laughs) This is what he says about Jesus. Jesus Christ also lived previous lives. Okay. Seems to fit in his worldview. 
So you see, he reached a high state, either as a bodhisattva, which is an enlightened person. It's a person who has the ability to reach nirvana, but who stays around for a while for the sake of other people. That's what he's talking about. An enlightened person, through Buddhist practice, he became an enlightened. He says he became an enlightened person through Buddhist practice or something like that. Then at a certain point, in a certain era, he appeared as a new master, and then because of circumstances, he taught views different from Buddhism. So, so the Dalai Lama says that in a previous life, Jesus learned Buddhism, but then when he arrived as Jesus of Nazareth in the first century, he taught things different to Buddhism because of certain circumstances. Okay, that's weird. That's, that's hijacking and co-opting Jesus of the Bible to agree with everything you think he needs to be. I think everybody needs to have a category for Jesus. Everybody needs to reckon with Jesus, but not everybody gets to claim him as their guy. He doesn't actually leave room for that. Um, Gandhi loved the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Gandhi of, of bumper sticker fame, be the change you want to see in this world. That Gandhi. Okay, Gandhi, he loved the Sermon on the Mount. He loved it. He hated the Old Testament. And he did not like the rest of the New Testament, especially the letters of Paul. He liked what he saw as the ethical or the moral essence of the Sermon on the Mount, but what he did not like is the Jesus is Lord part of the New Testament. He had a hard time with that. Gandhi had this really eclectic religious worldview where he took bits from a number of different world religions and kind of blended them together. It was very Vancouver of him. He's very progressive in this way. And, and he kind of put things together and then tried to fuse Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount into what he thought. But I think in doing that, he ends up rejecting the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount that he wants to claim fits within his thinking. Gandhi actually said, if I had to face only the Sermon on the Mount and my own interpretation of it, I should not hesitate to say, oh yes, I'm a Christian. Well, I would also add, if I only had to face three chapters of my choosing from the 66 books of the Bible, and then I was the only authoritative interpreter, I would be fantastic about that. I'd be really good at that. I'd be super good at that. I'd pick some easy chapters. No, if, you, if you're the only interpreter of it, that means you're actually the center and you're the authority. We don't get to take Jesus' words and then subsume them into our worldview whereby we're the authority. It doesn't work like that. Jesus doesn't make room for us to do that. You don't get to cut and paste what he said and then be the one who gets to define it. See, Jesus didn't drop into the first century out of nowhere and start teaching things that no one had ever heard and hope that one day in 2019 you'd be sitting here and that you'd agree with him and say nice things. That, that wasn't Jesus' mission. So again, I ask you the question, can you adopt the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount while rejecting its teacher? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wonderful German pastor, theologian, wonderful author, humanly speaking, he said, it is possible to understand the Sermon on the Mount in a thousand different ways. But Jesus knows only one possibility, simple surrender and obedience, not interpreting or applying it, but doing and obeying it. That is the one way to hear his words. He does not mean for us to discuss it as an ideal. He really means for us to get on with it. German directness is near to my heart. <laughs> so one of the reasons I think this sermon has such broad, even universal appeal in, in lots of ways 
And one of the reasons that it's hijacked and co-opted by so many people who don't actually follow Jesus or trust Jesus or believe in Jesus or love Jesus or worship Jesus, one of the reasons is that there's so many Jesuses in our culture. So if we're going to understand this sermon and obey this sermon, then what we need to do first is we need to square away who the preacher of the sermon really is. We have to start there. And like I said, Jesus did not just drop into the first century out of nowhere. The Sermon on the Mount is part of a bigger story. The Sermon on the Mount is part of a bigger story, and the preacher on the Mount is the fulfiller of that bigger story. The first verse of Matthew's Gospel says, Matthew 1.1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, the son of Abraham. There's a couple clues in there for us as to what he is signaling to the people who would have first been reading this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's the book of origin. He's saying this is the book of origin of Jesus Christ. Same wording as we see used a couple times early on in the book of Genesis, which is the book of beginnings. Matthew's signaling to the people, pay attention because I'm about to tell you who Jesus is, how he is the Messiah, and how it's really bringing a new beginning to humanity. A new beginning to humanity. That's what Matthew's gospel is going to drive toward. He says in here, the book of the genealogy, the book of origins of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. These were signals that would have reminded the people who were first reading Matthew's gospel of the promise that God made to Abraham and the promise that God made to David. Namely, that he would bless the whole world through the family of Abraham and that he would always, David, would always have somebody in his lineage sitting upon the throne. Now I'm going to spare you the rest of the genealogy because I love you. But this tells us that Jesus was born in a particular family. He was born into a particular story with particular hopes and dreams about their future and a particular view of their salvation that God had promised. He does not drop into things in the middle of nowhere, which means that you don't get to interpret him however you like. It's a continuation of a story. Genesis chapter 12, God chose a man named Abram. Later, his name's changed to Abraham, and he made him a promise. It says in verses 1 to 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I'll show you. Something about the promise of the land. I will make you a great nation, he says, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now Abraham goes on, he has a son. His name's Isaac. Isaac has a son whose name's Jacob. Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. Israel has 12 sons. We call them the 12 tribes of Israel. Eventually, the oldest 10 sons, who probably weren't that cool to hang out with, or also really cool to hang out with, depending on your perspective, took the 11th born son of Israel and they sold him into slavery. That's why they weren't cool, but also probably maybe were cool. Not cool, but fun. Maybe that's how it would be. I don't know exactly how it looks. They take their little brother, the 11th born of the 12, his name's Joseph, and they sell him into slavery because family. Eventually, through a, a, a really challenging set of circumstances, Joseph rises to become the prime minister of Egypt. 
through a really negative set of circumstances, his family are now living in peril. They're in famine. And because Joseph has been elevated to this office of prime minister in Egypt and because God has spoken to him, he has made a plan to save people around because he anticipated the famine. God spoke to him. He knew the famine was coming. He prepared for it. And so what ends up happening is Joseph's family leave the land that they're dwelling in and they come to Egypt. And because Joseph has been elevated to this prime ministership of the nation of Egypt, he is able to save the family. We turn to Exodus chapter 1, and what happens there is that the king, or the pharaoh in Egypt, has forgotten all about Joseph and how great he was, and he only is concerned about the procreation uh, veracity of the Israelites. They are having babies on babies on babies, and the population is swelling in the nation. And here is the thing. He's afraid that some enemy nation may come in, and these Israelites who are populating the land in Egypt, that they may just side with those enemies, and they may overthrow the Egyptian rule. So what he does is he enslaves them. He treats them very harshly, to the point where he even tells the Egyptian midwives, if you are helping a Hebrew woman and she is delivering a baby boy, I want you to put it to death. He even makes a decree in the land that every baby boy born to the Hebrews needs to be tossed into the Nile River. Then an Israelite boy named Moses is born. And he is also put in the Nile River, but not in the Nile River to be destroyed. He is put in the Nile River that his life might be spared. And he's put into a basket that's floated down And one of Pharaoh's own daughters finds Moses and raises him as her own. He grows up in the king's household. One day he sees the oppression of his people under the rule of his adoptive family. He sees the oppression of his people and he goes out and he tries to break something up and he ends up killing an Egyptian, buries him in the sand. Pharaoh finds out and he says, we should kill this guy. Moses then flees to the land of Midian In the land of Midian, he has an encounter with God, realizes that he himself is called to go in as directed by God and deliver his people from bondage and slavery and bring them out of Egypt. Goes in and he tells Pharaoh, let my people go. Crazy miracles, there's signs and there's wonders. And Moses leads the children out of enslavement in Egypt through the Red Sea, into the land of 40 years of wandering in the desert wilderness on their way to the promised land, the land that he had first promised to Abraham. On the journey, God calls Moses to come up the mountain. And God reveals the law to Moses on the mountain. Moses was then to come down the mountain and tell the people what God had said and how he wanted them to live. Moses was the mediator between God and his people. Moses was given the covenant that the people were supposed to abide by so that they could realize how to properly live as God's people in the world. See, these people were chosen by God. With the choosing, though, there came a responsibility to stand out rather than to blend in among the nations. Later on in the history of this nation, the prophet Isaiah heard from the Lord and communicated to the people. This is what God said through Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So this was the goal. This was the goal. That God's people would learn how to live in light of the promise that he had made to Abraham, in light of the law that he had revealed to Moses, 
and that the way that they lived, they would live in light of the truth that they were called to be a separated people, a different kind of people who would shine as a light among the nations. So I want you to notice this. Moses was born when the king of Egypt wanted all the male Israelites killed. Moses was sent away that his life might be spared. He understands that he's called to be the deliverer of his people. Moses is a prophet who does many signs and miracles in the face of the authorities. He is the one that God uses to set his people free, and he brings them out of Egypt into the promised land. Moses crosses through the water of the Red Sea, is led by the Holy Spirit out into the desert, and then he is called up the mountain. And he acts as a mediator between God and God's people. Here Moses receives the law, and then based on the law, he tells the people how they are to live and how if they are going to be obedient to him, to God, that they will stand out as a light among the nations. And then Moses tells them something else that we read in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Jesus did not drop into a story that had not yet begun. He came and was born as the fulfillment of a promise that had been made. Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. And he says, hey, listen to him. See, the life and ministry of Moses was always anticipating its fulfillment in the life and ministry of Jesus. So Moses is a type, in this sense, of the one who was to come. He was the prophet who was mediating God's will to the people. He knew that there would come another prophet greater than him who would then mediate God's will to the people in a much more profound way. Now this is part of the vision of the Old Testament people of God. This is the world that Jesus comes into. They were on the lookout for another prophet. So much so that when John the Baptist began his ministry, he's out baptizing people in the Jordan River. The leaders of the religious world there in Jerusalem come out to the river where John's baptizing, and they say, hey, are you the prophet? He says, no, just here preparing the way. They were looking for the one who was to come. This is the world that Jesus came into. Now we're in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we see the genealogy of Jesus and how it grounds the origin story of Jesus as the son of Abraham and the son of David, the one through whom the whole world would be blessed and the king of Israel who had the promise made to him that somebody from his lineage would always sit upon the throne. We see his promised birth. The angel tells his adoptive father Joseph to call his name Jesus and says, for he will save his people from their sins. Chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel, Herod, who's the king who's ruling over this area of land in the Roman Empire, he hears that there's a baby born who's being called the king of the Jews, and he sees that as competition, and he basically loses it, and he orders the slaughter of all boys to and under in the neighborhood and vicinity of Bethlehem. Jesus' parents find out about this through Revelation, and they take Jesus And because of the peril that they're in and the circumstances they're in, they flee to Egypt. And after a while, God speaks to them and says, it's okay to go home. And they leave from Egypt and they go back to the promised land. 
Eventually, Jesus is older. John the Baptist is out baptizing. Jesus goes to him, and he's baptized. The Holy Spirit falls upon him, descends upon him as like a dove, it says. And we hear the voice of the Father speak, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. See, you don't get to create Jesus in your image. He is revealed to you as the Son of the Father, empowered by the Spirit. You see the whole picture of God at work. Jesus is then immediately led after his baptism out into the desert where he is tempted and tested for 40 days. And then he comes back and he begins his public ministry with these words that we see in Matthew's gospel, chapter 4, verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He begins his public proclamational ministry. Jesus then calls his first disciples and he begins ministering to the crowds who start to gather around because of all the signs and wonders and miracles that he's doing. And we get to the text that we heard read this morning. In Matthew 4, 23, it says, He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, and those having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And then we enter into the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. He sat down, his disciples came to him. We know that the crowds gathered around. And he opened his mouth and taught them. I want you to notice something. Jesus was born when King Herod ordered the male Israelite babies to be killed. His family fled to Egypt to be saved and then were called back from Egypt into the promised land. Jesus understood that he was called to be the deliverer of his people and his preaching was accompanied by many signs and wonders and miracles in the face of the authorities. He enters into the waters of baptism and then is immediately led by the Holy Spirit, into the desert, and then Jesus goes up the mountain. But Jesus does not receive the law from God. When he goes up the mountain, he gives the law. And based on this law for them, he tells his people how they are then to live. And how if they obey him, they will stand out as the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Jesus acts as the mediator between God and his people in the ultimate sense where he lays his life down and gives himself in death for his people. See, Matthew is going to great lengths to show you something. Jesus does not just drop into the first century out of nowhere. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' Life in general is part of a bigger story. It's part of a bigger story of which he is the fulfiller. Matthew's telling us that Jesus is the true and better prophet that Moses spoke of. Moses said, there's going to be a prophet like me who will come. Listen to him. Jesus is the true and better Moses that God had promised. Jesus is the true and better deliverer of his people who leads them not out of slavery in Egypt, but out of slavery to sin. 
Matthew wants us to see that Jesus, like Moses, passed through the waters and was then led into the desert by the Holy Spirit. That Jesus is the true and better mediator of a true and better covenant. Matthew wants us to see in his gospel that Jesus, like Moses, went up on the mount, but where Moses received the law, Jesus says he is the one who has come to fulfill it, and then he gives his people a new kingdom manifesto to live by. And where the Sermon on the Mount is understood and obeyed among the community of Jesus' people, it will fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah when he said, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Jesus lives and dies, is buried, is risen, teaches his disciples for a period of days, and then as he is preparing to ascend on high in Acts chapter 1, we see that Jesus is with his disciples. And in Acts chapter 1, he says to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Just like Isaiah prophesied. The ends of the earth. So I want to ask you the question one more time. Can you adopt the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount while you reject its teacher? I don't think so. See, Jesus does not drop in out of nowhere. He has come as the fulfillment to all the promises that God has made. See, when we're done with the Sermon on the Mount, if we do a proper job preaching it, we will not be enamored with the Sermon on the Mount. We will be enamored with Jesus. Hopefully, like uh, E. Stanley Jones wrote, he wrote a book called The Christ of the Mount, which I, I like that because I think it puts the emphasis where it should be. He wrote, he wrote this book, The Christ of the Mount. I, I hope that we see the Sermon on the Mount as a type of portrait of Jesus, as a type of portrait of his Father, as a type of portrait, even of us, of how we live as his new kingdom people. We're supposed to live in light of this revealed knowledge of God, this message that Jesus communicated, the new birth that he has offered and given us. So this sermon points us to the ideal king, and it points us to the ideals of his kingdom, not as an idealistic sort of thing to think about once in a while, but actually so that we can seek to obey it. I'm so excited to see how over the next 10 months, 32 different weeks, how God uses this to shape our community. As we are people who have said, when Jesus said, follow me, we've said, we will. Do you stand with me as we respond today? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.